what happens if we assume that every character contains all of us and its opposite? From Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago, Illinois. And that every time we play a role, we expand. This is Half Hour. Hey, how's everyone doing? Great. It's so nice to be with you both. This week on Half Hour, we got me, James Vincent Meredith. Caroline Neff. And me, Audrey Francis. So, Audrey, how are you, Audrey? Oh, you know, James, I'm hanging on by a thread. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. But listen, what I really want to know is what are we listening to today? That's what I want to know. (laughs) Well, James, funny you ask, I recently sat down with a true Walking visionary, director, adapter, writer, Tina Landau. She's truly amazing. Yes, yes. Hey, so how was that? Before the interview, I was really nervous. I was practicing how I was going to talk and not stop, you know, not do all the stupid things that I'm currently doing right now. And then the second she starts talking, I'm instantly put at ease the same way that I am as an actor in her room. So it was it was so much fun. I have been lucky enough to work with her a few times, and every time that I've been in that rehearsal room, um, there's all these nerves and everything at the very beginning of rehearsal, and she is the epitome of the director who says, take risks, do your thing, be you, and we will find the story together, and and it gives you the agency to take those risks that maybe you wouldn't with with other directors, and so... Um, every time I'm in the room with her is a treat. I've actually never gotten the opportunity to work with Tina, so I only know her as A, an educator, and then B, also just a a, a leader in some of the meetings that we have at Steppenwolf. And, and I just think she is so gifted at owning that leadership role, but also making sure that everybody in the room, no matter what the reason we're all there for, that everybody's voice is heard and expressed and valued. And I just, I love that about her. Mm-hmm. Agree, agree. Um... So, y'all, is there anything else we should know uh, before we listen? Yes. There's one thing that we talk about called the viewpoints technique, which is kind of a hard thing to describe. It's one of those things that you really understand it once you're actually doing it. But I'll do my best to describe it here. Tina is one of the co-authors, along with Anne Bogart, of a book called The Viewpoints. And it's a technique of improvisation that grew out of the postmodern dance world. And it really focuses on giving artists a vocabulary through space and time in which they can communicate. And it's remarkable. So after you hear this conversation, you might want to get that book. I love viewpoints, and I I thought that I hated it, and then I discovered that I actually love it. It's one of my favorite ensemble building techniques of all time. Um, And to be involved with somebody who is as instrumental in the development of that is is really special. Well... Let's listen. Um, Here's Audrey Francis with the one and only Tina Landau. Welcome back, everyone. This is your half hour call. Please sign in if you've not already done so. This is half hour. The house is about to open. Half hour, please. Tina Landau, writer, director, adapter, artistic superhero to so many. I'm just going to dive right in. What's the most important part of your artistic process? I think the most important part is being open, openness. I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind because 
I always feel that what I generate and try to think of and invent and force into thought or being is never as exciting and surprising and true as what comes at me. And so when I work, I like to think of myself as being open, an open vessel to, to all that comes my way. And that's collaborators in the room, but it's also something I dream at night when I'm asleep or a color I see on the street as I'm walking to rehearsal. I have been lucky enough to be an actor in one of your uh, rehearsal processes. I mean, you actually had a day for us where we got to bring what we thought was what you called vice. Mm. Can you describe what vice is? Yeah. When I say something in a process, if I say something is vice or not vice, that comes from what is perhaps a myth or perhaps a truth that I learned from Anne Bogart, um, my dear friend and, and fellow director, who said that when the TV show Miami Vice was filming, they had a person who was not um, in any one department, but was a liaison between location and, and continuity and um, acting and directing and casting, and that their job was to look at things and say either that's vice or that's not vice, meaning that something kind of intuitively belonged in the world of this show. Um, if you can't say it, you point to it. So instead of me or the person on Miami Vice saying, this is what this is, I can describe it, and here are the elements we need, you kind of look at all the elements and instinctively say vice, not vice. Not, you know, so I always feel when I'm directing that I'm working at my best because it's best for the piece. If I'm inviting everyone in the room to contribute a lot of material and I can act more like an editor than a generator. And the way I edit sometimes in shortcut is by saying, vice and somehow the world starts to emerge and be defined but it's not like there's any right or wrong about what can be vice at the beginning i mean that's exactly what it feels like being in your room it must take an incredible amount of faith to build a world on the spot together and trust your intuition how hard is that it's not anymore what would be much harder for me would be to for someone to say before you start your first day of rehearsal figure out what it's going to look like and where people are going to go and how the set is going to shift and that would be hard for me at this point granted when i was much younger the process we're talking about now i think was much scarier but i have just learned over so many decades of directing that that this works. It, it never fails me when I take that leap of faith. So at this moment in my life, it just feels like second nature. It just feels like the most natural, easy thing to do. You have been touted and appreciated as a director who is willing to accept all pieces of the human beings that you're working with, including identity, race, gender, orientation, ability, all those things. And that 
you know, is a very big topic of conversation, obviously, right now. But you've always done that. And you have always welcomed every piece that makes a human a human. How do you do that? Well, you know, it's funny because when you said, what, what was the first question? What do you... What's the most important part of your artistic process? Yeah. So I would say attached, like, like a, a twin to openness is inclusion. You know, they're, they're part of the same beast. Um, so it's the same idea, which is it's not just, you know, whatever images or objects or stories people bring into the room that I look at and say, these are the ingredients from which we can work. It's the people themselves. So, you know, I, I'd say adjacent to openness is, is the notion of inclusivity. And I've always thought of the rehearsal room as being a, a place where my task is to make a space for people to tap into their maximum possibility of everything they are, and that we are larger than we think we are, not smaller. You know, I remember um, the director, Andre Serban, once saying that what he thought happens sometimes when actors get cast in roles is that they shrink themselves into the role. They think, I'm going to define this role. She would do that. She wouldn't do that. But what happens if we assume that every character contains all of us and its opposite? And that every time we play a role, we expand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think of that. And, you know, I don't know how I do that, Audrey. I just, I, I, I really think, <laughs> I think the, the cause has something to do with me just growing up feeling you know, completely other and weird and marginalized and not seen and not heard and not fitting in a given room. So I became over time very sensitized to that in others. Hmm. And do you feel like you're able to allow yourself to expand when you write? Yeah, I, I think, I hope so. You know, it's a very interesting time we're living in because in one case one of the the pieces i'm working on that i'll is a project i'll be doing next year in new york at a place called little island where i'm now an artist in residence for three years and it is a retelling of well i'm i'm rewriting a play i wrote in 1994 called stonewall which we did outside as a big, immersive, site-specific pageant, a cast of 60 with a company called On Guard Arts on the piers in New York City for the 25th anniversary of Stonewall. And I was asked to reconsider it for next summer, and um, I tried to. The piece has really shifted, and it's going to be a whole new piece. But the characters that I'm focusing on are, for the most part, trans and trans women of color and street youth. And, you know, so I've also been grappling over these months with the question of who gets to tell whose story. Right. So it's, um, you know, I think of expansion in some ways. You know, writers obviously can't write novels or plays full of characters that look and sound and think like they do. But in this moment of 
very intensified cultural upheaval, which I am profoundly in support of. You know, it, it, it has raised questions for me of like, no, I, I don't need to expand into that space. I might want to bring on a writer that I collaborate with to live in that space. Can I read you something? Mm-hmm. The most important element to consider in casting is diversity. Find and celebrate diversity in body type, color, race, gender, and age. That's what the ocean habitat looks like. That's how our world is. And that's the bikini bottom way. Yeah. <laughs> you found my SpongeBob casting note. I did. I was so happy about this because, um, you know, the, the show came up for licensing with Concord Theatricals and they kept asking me, what's the breakdown, male, female? And I kept saying, there is none. Like, there are no males and females. <laughs> now, I had the good fortune of being able to be talking about bikini bottom. <laughs> right. Now, m many people would argue, well, of course there's females. Mrs. Puff is a female. SpongeBob is a male. But in my mind, they're all just creatures. And so um, I, I requested in our licensing that we said that any role could be played by anyone of any kind of race, gender, size, ability, etc. And it took a while to get the thumbs up on that from them, but but they eventually gave it and I and I really feel like that. I feel I don't know. I feel like when when a stage is peopled in that way, it's it's very alive and it's very reflective. Not only like sometimes we talk about saying we need to cast this show or staff our theater so it looks like our city. And I would say, like, yeah, I want to cast my shows so they look like nature. All right, everyone, 15 minutes. 15 minutes, please, to the top of the show. 15 minutes. Can you tell us a little bit about Viewpoints, the technique that you and Anne Bogart co-created? Yes, I will say this. I don't feel that we co-created it. I feel that Viewpoints is something that exists, that has um, received ever finer adjustments to language describing it, that started with a woman named Mary Overly, who was a choreographer at NYU that Anne worked with, who originally coined the six Viewpoints. And then by the time I met Anne, she was doing like her slightly own version of that. And then we experimented and studied and shifted and eventually articulated uh, a kind of a theory, if you will, of viewpoints that were specific to us. So how often do you use viewpoints when you're directing? Oh, always. I tried an experiment once when I was directing a play called Mary Rose at the Vineyard Theater in New York. I tried an experiment of not doing viewpoints in rehearsal to see what would happen. And uh, all I remember is sitting in tech and one of the actors being like, raised their hands and kind of shouting, we should have done viewpoints. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know what was going on, but I remember that. And I remember thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, you know, because viewpoints function on so many levels. And again, they're not something that we don't 
organically do anyway. It's just a way of describing it and therefore making our choices, our awareness, you know, more more alive and brave. But viewpoints have to do with a shortcut to language that I can use in rehearsal, so they save time. Viewpoints have to do with generating material, like you're, you were saying before, where you know people I'm working with create things that we can then draw on and use. Viewpoints have to do with building ensembles. You know, it can serve as just a, a, a basic training technique for having the cast practice listening to each other and responding to each other. Um, viewpoints can sort of uh, awaken casts to energy inside of a performance so that you're viewpointing with an audience. One thing I do know is that, again, over time, I have learned that I viewpoint all the time in life. Yeah. Meaning basically the idea that, again, it goes back to openness, being open to what actually occurs in the moment rather than your idea of what you want to have happen. And, and so I feel like, yes, I need to call on those skills of listening and openness and working off my partner as much in my relationship as I do in figuring out staging. Okay, see, that's what I was going to ask. Because if I'm somebody who doesn't know you or get to work with you, I think man, Tina Landau sounds fucking awesome. I bet she's so chill and cool to party with. <laughs> and I also know you as a huge, um, what I would classify as achiever. Like you're incredibly intelligent. You're driven. You're, you're a natural leader. So are those two things ever at odds? Like the, I don't know if you consider yourself an achiever, but also this like open to change, this openness to change. How hard is that to apply that in your personal life? I joke all the time that the Tina that my cast thinks they knew in rehearsal suddenly becomes my alter ego, Thelma, in tech. <laughs> and, and, and Thelma talks like this. And, and where Tina said, like, I don't know, sure, try it, do anything. Thelma will go, just say it. Just talk louder, talk faster, talk funnier. So Thelma kicks in because Thelma has to... Thelma has to take us through a new part of the process, which is the audience. Like, you know, if something is not working and it's too long and the, I, I'll cut it, you know, Thelma makes cuts and Thelma <laughs> and Thelma keeps her eye on running time and yeah. Thelma um, tells the designer, no, we're doing it. I'm telling you, you know, mm -hmm. that's there. So anyway, that's all by way of saying. I think those two things exist in me, and I don't think one could exist without the other. The other image I love is the image of like a very loose, flowy, let's say silk piece of fabric that is the play or the openness or, or the flow or whatever, and that it just will fly away or dissipate unless you find a couple of places and stick pins in it so that there are like these pillars around which the flow can keep happening. And, and that's kind of how I, I think of all of what we're talking about, you know, a little bit how I work, a little bit how 
you set or don't set a play? Like, you know, how much do you determine um, before you're on stage and what do you leave open? And I feel that you're right. It's a constant dance. Oh, but a dance nonetheless. It, it's so hard, I think, as especially maybe, I don't know if it's Americans or just today, or it's so hard to believe that, that a duality can exist, that both things can be mm, true. Yes. And that's what makes it so exciting, which now leads me to kind of ask you, you have such your own style and vision and way of working that feels so unique. So when you started working with Steppenwolf at that time, there was like a very gritty kitchen sink realism and that was the only thing that happened so how did this relationship happen how did it work how did you reconcile the differences i love that question because i haven't thought about it in a long time but i i love what happened um frank galati saw my musical floyd collins that i wrote and directed in new york and told martha who was then art had just become artistic director that she had to go see it and we had to do it martha came she loved it we started talking about that it became apparent that Steppenwolf had no idea what they were doing when it came to really producing a musical. And we just decided we should look for something else first. But I remember thinking at the time, oh, how is this going to work? I mean, it's exactly what you just said. I said, it's going to be oil and water. It's going to be a bunch of actors who don't want to make a shape and would rather quit <laughs> and, and, and walk out of the rehearsal room. And me having to listen for, you know, five hours to someone talking about what their prop means and where they should put it. <laughs> and I was like, it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> um, but I'll never forget one of the, the rehearsals of it was um, Time to Burn, a Chuck Me play that was my first show, um, where Mike, the great Mike Nussbaum of Chicago theater fame, who was at that point, older, the oldest person in the cast, and we were doing viewpoints. And, um, and, and what I did with Steppenwolf, as I do always with new people, is say, you don't have to love this. You don't have to think or feel anything other than I ask for two hours of an open heart to just go with it and see what happens. And I'll never forget at the end of that session, Mike raised his hand and I, I was like, oh no, what's he going to say? He's going to say, this is crap and why are we doing this? We're wasting time. And he said, I just want to share that you can teach an old dog new tricks. <gasps> I know, I was so moved. Um, wow. Yeah. And then the second year, you know, I was doing space and it was Amy and Bob Bruler and Tom Irwin and... I remember thinking again, because there was a famous story at that time how Rondi Reed had said to some director who was working at Steppenwolf doing something that wasn't viewpoints, but something that was physically based or something, did say, I don't do gestures and stormed out of rehearsal. And I'm not telling this out of school. I mean, you know, I've, I've joked with Rondi about this. Um, and I remember thinking, again, the same thing was going to happen. It wasn't until I really worked with, it was Amy, Marianne, Bob, Tom. I'm trying to think if there was another ensemble member in it. Where, um, you know, I remember Amy and Tom throwing themselves at a wall and smashing an orange. And just that, that they just did it. They just took that initial leap. 
and um, it's just been a honeymoon ever since. Oh, yeah. And you know why, Audrey? Because ultimately viewpoints and the Steppenwolf way, are you will, are devoted to the same values, which are openness, listening, spontaneity, boldness. Like the goal is the same, which is how do we create true and live moments in theater? And once you acknowledge that that's what we're all after, you you start to understand that you'll use anything that works to try to get there. So, you know, and, and viewpoints are not the way I direct. They are a way I direct. And I would never do viewpoints without text work or without some other kind of approach or another one that, you know, it's... Um, Anyway, I think that's why it's worked with with me and Steppenwolf in the long run is because we're we're trying to make the same kind of theater ultimately. Okay, one last question before before we hit the lightning round. What is your half hour process? You can speak to it as an adapter, as a writer, as a director, but half hour before yeah. whether it's a preview opening yeah. whatever, what do you do? That's really good cuz I just realized that I do have a half hour process. Um, and what I think of is half hour before having to speak, like speaking is, is my landscape of terror. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's why I am now, you know, when I go to my first day of rehearsal, I always write down what I want to say. And again, it's because I had, when I was very young, some situations where my anxiety and nerves got the better of me, and I became very scared. I, I, I guess it's not wasn't stage fright; it was first day rehearsal fright. Um, and I still get that sometimes, like if I'm doing an interview. I'm not feeling it today, thank goodness. But that's because you're so welcoming and warm. But sometimes I still get it. So before I have to do anything where I feel like there are expectations on me, um, I usually have to go and sit outside, and not talk to anyone and like really connect with things like natural light. Hmm. Um, just, just remember that, you know, what I'm about to do in the work we do is everything at times, but also nothing. And to, to have some kind of larger perspective, like I look at the sky that's my half hour. Five minutes, please. Five minutes to the top of the show. Five minutes. Okay, you ready for the lightning round? I didn't know there was a lightning round. Yeah, get ready. All right. What's your most prized piece of play memorabilia? Uh, a script of Guy Atkins that he gave to me shortly before he passed away that is the script, his script of Time of Your Life. What animal do you most identify with? Hmm. A gazelle. Who is an artist or some artists who are giving you the most inspiration right now? Mm. Gerhard Richter, the painter. Mm -hmm. um, Sylvia Rivera, um, the great uh, trans icon and human whose story I've learned much about surrounding Stonewall. 
Sylvia Rivera is my inspiration today. Great. If you had a superpower, what would it be? I want to fly. What do you daydream about? I, I daydream stories. You know, I often find myself just sitting and imagining what would happen if this girl that I'm seeing walked into the woods, what would she meet there and, you know, stuff like that. Ooh, do th how often do those go dark? Do you ever catastrophize things or are you? No. Oh God, you're lucky. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, just a Dateline episode in my head, one, uh -oh. one daydream after the other. Okay, what is one thing you do every day? Drink coffee and drink wine. Favorite place to unwind in Chicago? The Steppenwolf Downstairs Theater. Favorite piece of advice? Just, again, I think if I thought about this longer, I would have a different answer, but I'm going to say the first thing that came to my mind, which is, in the time of your life, live. In the time of your life, live. Which is what I have tattooed on my arm. How many times has that changed what your what your mind was when you looked down at that? If you were about ready to do something, did you ever look at your arm and then change your mind? No, I don't. I don't think I have. I think it's it's more confirmation. It's more. I look down and it says it's it's a big yes ander. It says to if I'm feeling nervous about doing something, is this crazy of me to do? Is this too out there of me to say? I look down and it says no. You have one life live eat the fucking cake yeah okay great drink the fucking wine okay final lightning round question this was not very lightning this was like you know a 15 minute lightning round but okay and yet one of the fastest that we've done <laughs> oh uh, if you were a character in a play what would your character's description be um woman um, let's see, um, unidentified, uh, mysterious woman in her <laughs> late fifties with dark hair that continually covers her face as she, what's the word, like flit, not flits, but like kind of trounces from side to side on the stage in her big dark baggy clothes, sitting on this and that and then the other. <laughs> All right, everyone, this is your Places Call. Places, please, for the top of the show. Have a wonderful show tonight. Places, please, places. That was great. Tina Landau, right? Oh, man. She's unbelievable. She's perhaps one of the busiest people that I know between her stage work, between the work that she's doing at Little Island in New York, and between all the way she's involved at Steppenwolf, and to, to just feel like you are the only thing she's focused on in that moment is a talent that I wish that I had. Mm-hmm. 100%. I think back to one of the shows that I did with her, and, um, you know, the thing that she talked about as far as we have more space, I'm paraphrasing it, than we think we do. We're so much more than we think we are, you know, in the rehearsal room, we tend to shrink um, initially and, and then find our place. And it's about kind of expanding, I think. And and that's a hard lesson to learn when you first start working with her. I remember doing Hot El Baltimore 
And she had us go away and come back with um, a song that we could sing that was kind of of the era. And we came back in the next day and people were knocking it out. Of course, John Hill is John Hill, right? You know, Jacqueline Williams, Jacqueline Williams, right? So they were, you know, tearing it up. You know, their voices are crazy. And then I went up there and I tried to sing something and I was so nervous and so in my head and I could barely get through it. And I mixed up two different songs. Like it was the strangest thing. And and I felt like just horrible. And yet she brought me back in and she made me feel like I was still in and part of this and that that was had value. And I'll never forget that. So that to me is part of her. That That's, you know, I, I, I feel nervous and strange but i also feel safe when i'm in the room with her Mm -hmm. yeah she really makes every artist feel that everything that they have to offer has a place in her room uh guys sadly we're out of time um thank you for listening to this episode of half hour brought to you by steppenwolf theater company and thanks again to our guest this week tina landau Half Hour is produced by Patrick Sockham, mixed and edited by Matthew Chapman. The theme music for Half Hour is by Michael Bodine and Rob Milburn. The voice of this episode's stage manager was Michelle Medvin. Special thanks to Joel Mormon, Madeline Long, Christopher Huizer, Kirsten Adams, Anna Denoya, and all the folks at Steppenwolf. Follow us on Twitter at SteppenwolfTHTR or on Facebook and Instagram, and you can always get in touch by emailing halfhour at steppenwolf.org. In two weeks, we're going to be back with a conversation with a very special guest, Leslie Odom Jr. Till next time, this is James Vincent Meredith, Caroline Neff, and Audrey Francis's personal assistant. A lifetime to engage, half hour to places.